Welcome to the Center for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Irina Schneider, and I'm your host on the Governance Podcast today. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Professor Gillian Hadfield, who is the Richard L. and Antoinette Chamoy Kirtland Professor of Law and Professor of Economics at the University of Southern California. Dr. Hadfield studies the design of legal and dispute resolution systems in advanced and developing market economies, the markets for law, lawyers, and dispute resolution, contract law and theory, economic analysis of law, and regulation of legal markets and the legal profession. She holds a JD from Stanford Law School and a PhD in economics from Stanford University. Her book, Rules for a Flat World, was published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Jillian, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks, Irina. It's really wonderful to be here. So I just want to jump right into your book. Uh, You examine some of the key challenges that social complexity is actually posing for governance these days. Could you tell us a little bit more about the book's main argument, uh, where it came from, and can you explain the nature of these governance challenges? Sure. Our starting point is the fact that the world is uh, undergoing rapid transformation. The flat world in the title refers to, it's a reference to Tom Friedman's uh, book from about a decade ago, The World is Flat, where he emphasized the development of uh, a, a global collaboration platform as a result of the development of the internet and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the expansion of, of global markets. And in the decades since that uh, time, or a decade or more, we've seen even more extensive, you can use the term flattening, uh, primarily through digitization, which is about as flat as you can get. You can take objects, not yet people, but reduce them to a set of zeros and ones. And this is producing uh, a global economy that is increasingly uh, complex uh, and complex in a, the sense of complex adaptive systems, difficult to predict, highly responsive to small changes. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very fast-paced. Things change very rapidly. There's a lot of fluidity. And the main point I'm making is that, first of all, our existing what I call legal infrastructure, is not well adapted. Uh, It's based on the nation state. It's based on top-down, primarily politically managed uh, lawmaking, uh, closed professions in law, and that that system is not working very well to develop the innovative ways of regulating and providing legal order that we need for a much more complex global system. So my, my principal point is, number one, our existing systems aren't really going to be able to meet the challenge. And we need to figure out how we are going to reinvent the ways in which we make the rules and achieve social order uh, through law. I think that's critical for economic growth and uh, for addressing all of our, our social demands for equality and dignity. And I think we need to be thinking not just about what rules we want, but how are we going to make those rules and systems work? Can you give us a little bit more um, detail about sort of what what about the current legal infrastructure isn't working? Why are the current systems unable to handle this large amount of complexity? So over the last couple of hundred years, we've developed a very elaborate uh, and very effective, I like to think of it as a, as a, a platform um, that is uh, nation state based. Uh, it is coherent uh, and, and structured, organized, it's comprehensive, uh, but it, it, it basically looks to, at least in theory, looks to governments 
to produce all of our legal rules and to organize all the rules that determine what other rules, how they work and when they're valid. And that uh, that system worked extremely well for the mass manufacturing economy, industrialization, um, sort of through the 20th century. Uh, but number one, it doesn't work very well once we start having uh, productive relationships that are flying across uh, uh, jurisdictional boundaries. And if we have things that are happening very rapidly, it's, it's a process that's, one, very difficult to cross those boundaries. It has trouble managing the speed and complexity of those changes. And, uh, it, it, you know, since it just can't, it can't keep up. Uh, and it also is increasingly removed from the uh, knowledge about what's happening kind of at the ground level. So one of the key points that I'm trying to bring attention to is the idea we need to figure out how to get our systems for producing law closer to the ground of what's what's actually happening. Hmm. So you have a very interesting solution that you propose. Um, what you want to do essentially is create a new layer of organizations to regulate firms. And unlike many proposals for regulating markets, you don't simply call for extending the power of the traditional government to regulate markets. Can you explain what your solution is and how it would work? So I call this super regulation or... Uh uh, in more nerdy fashion, competitive approved private regulators. Um, and the idea here is that we need to start looking more to market mechanisms to invent new regulatory, call it technology, that doesn't mean it has to be digital, it, it just could be methods. Our existing technology is governments write rules, they monitor for violations, adjudicate and impose penalties. Um, so the, the principal idea here is um, it's, very, it's very comparable to the shift we see from centrally planned economies to uh, regulated market economies. Uh, you know, in the centrally planned economy, government makes all of the decisions about what to produce, how to price it, where to distribute it. When we shift to a regulated market economy, push that uh, decision making about what to produce and how to price it primarily into a market layer. And then we give government the role of regulating those markets. Mm-hmm. So this is like saying, okay, the legal rules and processes for achieving regulation are like other products. Uh, we would like innovation. We want to attract capital. We want to attract ideas and, and problem solving. So if we push this into a market so that we can have um, private entities, that could be profit or nonprofit, uh, in the business of producing regulatory systems. Now, the way that we make sure that this is responsive to the interests of the public is we still have a role for government, but we now think of the role of government as regulating those regulators. So we say to our our regulated entities, uh, you need to choose a private regulator, uh, but you can only choose from private regulators who have maintained an active license effectively from government, uh, who've been approved by government. And the role of government here is to make sure that those private regulators are achieving politically set and legitimate outcomes. So if you want to think about workplace accidents, uh, we could have governments, uh, politically accountable bodies, establishing acceptable levels of workplace accidents. 
and then private regulators who are coming up with different ways of achieving those objectives and selling that service to uh, workplaces, which are required by government to choose a regulator. So it's it's really just sort of moving that down and trying to get competition between uh, private regulators to drive innovation in regulatory technology. Okay, that's uh, that's a very interesting argument. Um, I just want to bring it down to a concrete example. Let's take uh, the pharmaceutical industry, for example. Um, so, you know, would you be a little bit concerned about handing over regulatory power to a for-profit uh, set of regulators? Because let's say, you know, giant, powerful pharmaceutical corporations um, are going to want to just choose the regulator that lets them earn the biggest profit margins with the loosest rules? And, you know, won't we have a race to the bottom where consumers might actually be exposed to unsafe medications because the rules created by the for-profit regulators are actually serving the interests of the pharmaceutical companies rather than, you know, ordinary people? So it's really important to remember the approved part of competitive approved private regulators. So this is the licensing of the private regulators by by governments. So uh, the regulator of pharmaceuticals, for example, if if this method, and I don't propose this method, could solve all regulatory problems, it won't be appropriate in all settings, but let's suppose that we determine it's appropriate in the context of drugs. Um, The provider of the uh, private regulation is essentially facing in both directions. Yes, it's facing the pharmaceutical companies that uh, will be, in fact, interested in a ch- you know choosing a regulator that helps them mm-hmm. uh, achieve what they have mm-hmm. to achieve at lowest cost. So there will be that pressure, that's market pressure. Uh, but at the same time, the private regulator is also facing the government mm-hmm. and required to demonstrate on an ongoing basis, so imagining a a regulatory process with some real teeth in it, Mm -hmm. is obligated to demonstrate that the private regulator has to demonstrate that its regulatory system uh, is in fact achieving, Mm -hmm. uh, let's say, uh, could be, you know, rates of injury or Mm -hmm. side effects Mm -hmm. in the the drug, Mm -hmm. with respect to that drug. Um, So it's, the, the private regulator can't just can't just meet the needs of the regulated entity. It mm-hmm. can't only be responsive mm-hmm. to the interests of the regulated entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to also recognize that, well, if, you know, if we really did start selling that really loose, crummy regulatory system, uh, then government's going to be auditing what happens and discover that we've allowed people to, or companies, to sell, mm-hmm. sell drugs that are causing excessively high rates of bad outcomes, and they lose their license. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can no longer. So it's you have to be dual-facing for that. It's mm-hmm. extremely important to remember. It's not. It's actually not... Uh, corporations are not deciding what the rules are. Mm-hmm. We're creating an independent layer of private regulators mm-hmm. that are obligated to achieve or, or lose their license. They, they, they don't make money if, if they mm-hmm. um, fail to achieve the mm-hmm. politically set outcomes. Mm-hmm. So these private regulators would ultimately, of course, be politically accountable. Um, But one thing that I still kind of worry about is that, you know, 
corporations, particularly powerful ones, can be very stealthy in how they kind of work through the regulatory process towards their own interests. So just to think about a little bit more, um, let's take environmental protection regulation. Um, let's say that auto manufacturers are, are, you know, they're making cars and the government imposes a fuel efficiency standard of 50 miles per gallon. But, you know, let's say the car manufacturers are going to hire the regulator that lets them meet that fuel efficiency standard. Um, but, you know, in exchange for sacrificing some other aspect of the car that is actually bad for the consumer of the, or the wider society. So let's just say the regulator says, well, actually, we found a, a way to kind of make it easy for you to meet this fuel efficiency standard if you make your cars lighter. Um, but then, you know, that actually makes it easier to lose control of the car and that increases accidents and motor vehicle deaths. So, you know, what kind of um, sort of protections are there in your scheme to, to prevent these private regulators from creating these kind of loopholes or making these kinds of trade-offs that actually can still be detrimental for ordinary people? So the, the dynamics of markets and the profit and motive and incentives, none of that goes away. I mean, these are issues we face throughout the economy today. And the, you know, the, the only reason regulated market systems um, achieve what they do uh, is because we figure out how to harness and control. You know, every, every profit-making company would love to have a monopoly, would love to cheat on what it could cheat on, would love to get away with whatever it can get sure, away with. Yeah. That's, that's the state of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, the reason we have regulation is to try and, and control that. Now, um, so, so yeah, you're exactly right. You know, those auto manufacturers are still, or they're going to be looking for every opportunity, just as they are now vis-a-vis government. Mm-hmm. Derive regulation, yes. mm-hmm. so none of that goes away. Mm-hmm. That doesn't go. We don't. We, it's not a magic bullet. We don't magically say, "Oh, they're going to sit back and just take whatever regulatory regime is created." Mm-hmm. But what we have done is reconfigured the role of government in being an overseer mm-hmm. of regulation to say, instead of directly, sure, the manufacturers will be pressing their mm-hmm. private regulators to try and get you know, mm-hmm. you know, let well, let us get away with the lighter car. How, But, you know, Mm -hmm. since the outcomes have only been set in terms of fuel Mm -hmm. efficiency, Mm -hmm. we can ignore this. Mm -hmm. Well, that can happen now with manufacturers and when that rule comes in from government, Mm -hmm. right? So um, so what what you'll have to be working towards is how does government uh, supervise the regulators and and establish Mm -hmm. what the outcomes required Mm -hmm. are um, in order to address? That's going to be an ongoing process as it is now mm-hmm. um, I think reconfiguring it into a market um, you know creates the potential for its actually there's a potential for greater transparency mm-hmm. we're, fo- we're focused on outcomes um, you know the manufacturers uh, right now when they lobby governments and so on it's actually very difficult for the public to uh, monitor that to oversee it. You know, think of the length in in the U.S. at any rate of mm-hmm. you know thousand page statutes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thousands and thousands right. of regulations that nobody reads. How do we supervise all of that? You know, if you now have a, a private regulator that's making money because it does a good job of achieving government standards, mm-hmm. government outcomes, has incentives to f- have better data systems to do, be able to do better, more effective monitoring. Mm-hmm. 
And if we're focused on outcomes, the way you just described it as, you know, here's an outcome, miles per gallon, here's an outcome, accidents due to the, the weight of vehicles, um, you know, I, I think that could be, in fact, easier for governments, more transparent for governments mm-hmm. and the public to oversee mm-hmm. uh, because we're focused on a smaller number of mm-hmm. variables um, and we're focused on prob- on a smaller number of entities. Regu- the government is regulating the private regulators. Uh, there might be, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 20 car manufacturers and, you know, globally maybe five private regulators or but our, our numbers are different uh there might be you know thousands and thousands of auto supply uh, part suppliers and so on mm-hmm. so i think the anyway i think that the th- those problems don't go away mm-hmm. it's really important to think we're not just sort of waving a wand and saying oh we're going to get rid of the profit incentive and the the interest of manufacturers in pressuring for whatever they can get away with mm-hmm. uh our problem right now is that we're governments acting directly face tremendous difficulty overseeing against precisely that uh, mm-hmm. that pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, in a sense, you know, what we have now, giant corporations, you know, hiring teams of lobbyists that will basically buy out politicians and basically write out the rules for themselves. Um, in a sense, you know, this is what we call state capture and and basically your system is still vulnerable to this kind of um, process and dynamic. Um, But, uh, you know, I kind of wonder, though, um, you know, your system is only going to work if it's competitive, if you have lots of different kind of competing private regulators offering different services. Obviously, it would be very kind of unfair if it was just a monopoly, which is, in fact, what is happening now. The government is a monopoly on creating Mm -hmm. rules and regulations. Um, But let's take, for instance, um, industries and tech, uh, let's say Google and Facebook, um, are now required by the government to choose a private regulator, and uh, they have to sort of comply with their rules that meet the government standards. But, you know, let's say Facebook and Google have the 90, like a 90% market share in their industry. It's a very high market concentration. They're, They're the only game in town, and they hire one regulator. But effectively, in doing that, they squeeze out the other regulators because there are just no other clients in this field. And so what happens if basically, you know, Google and Facebook can still get to write their own rules anyway through the private regulator by squeezing out competition? How can we make sure that this market remains competitive? So the, uh, so, so the, we, we have to, that this is an additional tool in the regulatory toolbox. That's my main proposal. And we have to be, you know, we're, we're going to have to identify settings where, in fact, we can maintain a competitive market of regulators. If, as you just described, there's a setting where there's really only one regulated, ultimately regulated entity because they have a 90% uh, market share. And so we can't have a competitive market of regulators because, as you pointed out, well, we have one regulator chosen there then that's not a setting in which this is an appropriate um, mm-hmm. form of regulation. It's just like when we do our analysis of uh, what goods should be produced in a market and what goods should be, be produced as public goods. Mm-hmm. And the capacity for competition due to scale 
uh, is a key consideration. That's why, you know, we, we at least historically, we had, you know, government supplied or, or, you know, electricity grids or water systems and so on. You say, look, you know, economies of scale, you only actually want one provider. You're describing mm-hmm. a setting where we just end up, because of network externalities, thinking mm-hmm. about those platform dynamics for a Google or a Facebook Although I think they're they're probably pretty contestable, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't seem like it today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so again, this is if we can't maintain a competitive market of regulators, no, you can't adopt this form of mm-hmm. this form of regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that, and I do think the type of analysis you, we should be doing is like the type of analysis we do in other settings to say, is this the type of good or service? that we think we can leave to markets because markets will be reasonably competitive and we can reasonably well regulate them. Or if not, is this in that subset of goods and services that need to be publicly provided? Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to put all of our regulatory questions Mm -hmm. in that same Mm -hmm. basket, do that same kind of analysis. And absolutely, there may be some where we say, uh, this is in the bucket of stuff that needs to be regulated directly by government because we can't maintain a competitive market mm-hmm. or because we can't effectively regulate mm-hmm. the private regulator. So effectively, there's still a role for government to actually produce regulation alongside private regulators yes. in this scheme. Yes, right? I, I would not e- expect at all that this, again, this mm-hmm. does not displace mm-hmm. all of our mechanisms, mm-hmm. uh, all of our uh, regulation into this model. But I think it's a really important model to be thinking about as we Look, look ahead or even today to, you know, the real challenges of regulating autonomous vehicle traffic, mm-hmm. uh, certain forms of artificial intelligence, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the types of things or, or, or even global supply chains. We have a tremendous amount of regulation that's happening right now mm-hmm. through second party regulation that mm-hmm. really is corporations regulating right. themselves. Mm-hmm. Most corporations were operating on a global scale are extensively involved in standard setting mm-hmm. bodies, um, in the development of uh, codes of conduct uh, through global supply chain contracts. There's lots and lots of our rules currently being produced by our corporations and private entities, um, but they're doing, you know, they're regulating themselves. So I kind of want to say, okay. We, we know that in these really new areas, cybersecurity, uh, you know, really tremendously distributed production systems, those companies are already saying we need something different from what we're getting out of uh, sort of the conventional methods of regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a place to start is to think, okay, think about the pressures to develop, to say where, where is our existing systems performing least well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I would not expect that everything would end up mm-hmm. in that model. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's actually one of the more interesting parts of the book and your argument. Um, you want to sort of get rid of the asymmetries of power in the regulatory process between sort of large corporations who get to write their own rules and ordinary people who actually have to sort of comply with these standards and they actually could get hurt in the process. Um, So I kind of wonder um, if you could talk a little bit more about the aspect of inclusiveness in your scheme. So 
you you talk a lot about how the current legal infrastructure is very much um you know, prohibitively costly, and most people get very little legal help, um, and the process of transacting often takes absolutely forever. So how would your system actually give ordinary people more access to the legal system and better legal services? Yeah, so we've, we've emphasized part of this, the proposal that I make in the book, which is that, you know, can we develop regulated markets for rules? Uh, but I also talk about uh, opening up our markets for access to legal services because our, our currently we have very very closed systems throughout most of the world, um, which has also meant that the products of legal services and that includes not just representational services but also the drafting of contracts and the design of policies and a lot of that legal material, most of which has become phenomenally expensive and complex. So think about the terms of service. Uh, that you know, people are clicking to agree constantly right, online. Yeah. Uh, long, complex. Nobody reads them. Nobody could read them. Uh, I think there's been estimates if it would take you like you know, 40 hours a week to read every privacy policy that you're probably <laughs> clicking agreement to. That's true. <laughs> um, on a daily basis. Um, uh, so, so nobody could. So those are rules being written by the companies that will be regulated by those rules. And mm-hmm. those are terribly important, some of those. Mm-hmm. They're about privacy. They're about security, uh, data security. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and, and the, we're not getting innovation in how do we manage that. So I think, number one, your, your point about inclusiveness uh, is that, you know, the vast majority of ordinary people are – you know, forced to be completely passive about the rules governing their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really just don't have a choice. The insurance policy, the terms of service, um, you know, there's lots of complexity in that way. Um, and if we introduce, uh, like I say, this, this layer of the providers of regulation, and that could be private providers of contracting terms or, 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 online relationship management Mm -hmm. because it doesn't have to be through contract Mm -hmm. um then i think there's a capacity for people to end up one understanding more about what Mm -hmm. the rules are having more choice about what rules they're under Mm -hmm. and you know if we have a let's suppose we have a global market in uh, regulators of workplace safety and let's suppose that operating on global scale, we're able to say there's sufficient scale for each of those regulators for it to be effective, for them to be competitive. Um, you know, conceivably, groups at a much lower level of aggregation than the nation state or even the, the you know, state or maybe even at the level of the city mm-hmm. could potentially be choosing which of these regulatory regimes they want mm-hmm. to be under. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Obviously, there would be incentive, there will be pressure the other way from, from the companies that want to be regulated by a single regulator. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that the whole world has to be under the same set of regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be differentiation, there could be choice. So I think there's a capacity for uh, participation in this process to be really mm-hmm. pushed closer to ordinary people mm-hmm. and smaller scale groups. And I think that's really critical. I think one of the things we're observing in the world is a lot of people saying, 
wow, those rules are being written off there in Brussels or mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., and what have they got to do with me? And, yeah, Google and Facebook uh, and so on, you know, they're sitting down and figuring out what they want all the rules to look like. But, you know, what happened? I'm not participating anymore. I have no say anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's been a tremendous change in mm -hmm. human societies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the long, long history of human organizations and, and social groups is, you know, we've, we've kind of figured out our rules at a very local level. Mm -hmm. Tremendous challenge to figure out how can we continue to have local participation and local that local sense of inclusiveness, I matter, I'm mm -hmm. important, mm -hmm. people are paying attention to my needs, um, when at the same time we're looking at, you know, this global scale mm -hmm. of economic activity. Mm -hmm. I think it's a real challenge. We can't just continue to say, well, keep moving the locus mm -hmm. of rulemaking further and further away, and as it becomes more complex, oh, we need more experts, you know, fewer and fewer people can really understand what goes on with cybersecurity or what goes on with drug regulation. Um, I think it's, it's a major challenge that we really, we need to be thinking about how to address it. I have some ideas about how to do it. I really think it's much more important that we be recognizing that we can't just continue to expect we've got a solution in our existing legal infrastructure. That's a really important point, particularly uh, in this day and age. And I kind of wonder, uh, though, there are different ways of increasing participation, popular participation in the rulemaking process. And your solution is very much market-driven. Um, but why don't we have, let's say, a deliberative democracy revolution instead? Why is the market better at serving the interests of the many rather than uh, the few? So, you know, let's say, what if we had local councils or cooperatives deciding on regulation rather than handing that power over to what would inevitably be powerful corporations? Well, I think we do have, you know, we, we certainly, this isn't, you know, this isn't an, an either or, it's, you know, both and. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, more deliberative councils, local councils. I think the, the history of that says most people don't want to spend their evenings and weekends, um, you know, going to meetings and, and regulation and so on. But they might be willing to, for example, spend some time. So let's, let's, let's think about an example here of, um, uh, you know, privacy policies and data, you know, how your data is treated when you sign up on a website. So right now, all of that regulation happens through a combination of uh, complex terms that are written by the entity you're trying to control or complex regulation that's generated uh, through uh, political bodies, uh, you know, potentially at a, at, a, at a level very, very far removed mm -hmm. from the local individual. It could be at the national level, the European level, even at the global level as we try to get global, we try to harmonize across all of that. Well, let's suppose that uh, we now had a market for that regulatory service. And uh, we said to uh, companies they had to choose a regulator. And now let's imagine that those different regulators, they come up with different packages of how data will be treated on a website. And now they want to actually convince consumers, ordinary people, 
to to use their to to use their system to to sign on to a a, a, right. a, a website that's got right. you know the uh, the Schneider rules mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if you're operating that company, you have an incentive to design an e- user friendly, easy to understand system. No forty page terms no of contract. No forty page. You've got six icons. You've got you know little videos or virtual mm-hmm. reality scenarios, vignettes mm-hmm. to explain. You have internalized the idea that more complexity, even in a complex environment, doesn't always achieve mm-hmm. better results. Right. You know, you you have the checklist mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, this is Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. But the idea that sometimes less is more, a simpler set of rules can achieve greater efficacy. Uh, you have an incentive to educate people about that and to make your educating of them entertaining, to right. do yeah. adver- you know, advertising that's entertaining, to draw them into a website, to... And because you can make money, you know, for every consumer who's willing to sign up with your system, you have an incentive to invest in figuring out what's the lightest, the right combination, the right balance of constraint and uh, outcome. So, So you have an incentive to invest in how can I best get this message across to people? So I think... You know, we all feel a certain amount of autonomy that we can decide as we look at, you know, what phones to choose, what computers to buy, what uh, televisions or, um, you know, appliances in our homes. Um, You know, we have a sense of, oh, I can go figure that out. And uh, so I actually think that's the capacity for ordinary individuals to, in fact, learn more and be able to control more. Mm-hmm. about the rules that are governing them. Right now, they have mm-hmm. very, very little control at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You actually run a legal hackathon uh, at USC, right? And you actually encourage more innovation in this field um, from young people and people in the field in general. So actually, it's very difficult you know, to, to disrupt the legal infrastructure that we have now. And a lot of the changes that we might want to make are very difficult and and slow moving. So how do you actually encourage people to innovate? Um, do you have any concrete examples of innovative ideas um, in the legal field uh, for how to make rulemaking and transacting more agile and fluid? Yeah, so we I, I run something called the Legal Design Lab uh, at, at USC, University of Southern California. I run this with my husband, Dan Ryan, who's a professor of innovation. Uh, and uh, what we do is we come into that, that class, uh, that lab, and we learn about the problems, and we teach people some basic design thinking and innovation tools and, uh, you know, ha- encourage students you know for the assignment for this for the semester is come up with some way of doing something I've been teaching this uh, for about uh, six years now first started teaching it at, at Harvard in 2012 and we seen we've seen some really creative stuff I mean my, my primary goal is to get people in legal education thinking more creatively to say you know there's one rule in the lab, and that is our solution can't be changed the law in this way. We've got lots of thinking about how we could change the law to solve a problem. Uh, but we have people who have worked on, uh, you know, 
apps for your phone that can take a picture of a document, mm-hmm. like a notice to appear or a subpoena or an eviction notice, and send people uh, simple, easy-to-understand information mm-hmm. about what's happening. Uh, we've had people working on the development of uh, blockchain-based identity systems uh, for people in poor developing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we I spent a whole semester working on global supply challenges and thinking about the development of a platform that would allow small traders in, you know, say India or China or Africa or throughout the world who are largely disconnected from the global economy to be able to enter into uh, transactions, um, you know, supply T-shirts or um, small goods or something to um, uh, entrepreneurs or companies throughout the uh, developed world. Um, so we've had we've all had all kinds of neat stuff there. You know, there's there's lots that's happening out there right now. Um, I was just reading this morning about actually it's a it's a I think a city now. So what you know there are some of these apps that light of you know, manage your ticket. If you've got a you know mm-hmm. municipal fine or a traffic mm-hmm. ticket, to be able to manage it with an app on your phone. And there's now some cities that have introduced this. So um, dispute resolution mechanisms. There's some really innovative stuff on platforms for dispute resolution that don't require you to go through courts and and lawyers to manage disputes with a contractor or with a you know your physician. Mm-hmm. Or um, so there's there's definitely things that are that are bubbling up. Um, the, the key thing to remember is that at the end of the day, this is not complicated stuff uh, in the sense that what we're trying to do is create an environment in which people feel confidence and trust, safety, mm-hmm. and fairness. Uh, and there's lots of ways to be creative about how to get people to feel that way. Uh, you know, if you're, st- if you're starting up a little startup yourself... Uh, you and your partner want to feel confidence that you, you know, you're, I said I would do this, you said you would do that, we agreed that we were going to try and accomplish this, and here's how we planned on sharing the costs, the risks, the benefits of this endeavor. You don't necessarily need a 25-page agreement right, yeah. to do that, um, but you need something that helps you to manage that relationship. Uh, so I, I think we're seeing some pretty exciting stuff. I'd love to see more of it. That is very interesting. And one of the more intriguing points uh, you just mentioned here is the implications of more legal innovation for the developing world. Um, And you talk about this in the book, uh, the the implications for the bottom of the pyramid. Um, So most of the world is actually living without the rule of law. And uh, many ordinary people don't have that kind of confidence and trust and security Mm -hmm. from the rule system in which they live. So how can... uh, you know, more legal innovation uh, and, and these sort of more decentralized ways of creating rules help people in the developing world? So I think this is really critical because basic legal infrastructure is missing from large parts of the world. Um, and often when we think about what are, the le- what are the legal challenges throughout the world, we're focused, we actually, those of us in the developed world are, you know, heavily focused on you know, important things about human rights and, and how people are treated, and that's, that's quite critical. Um, but what we, uh, but it's very top-down. What we don't pay enough attention to is the, the absence of just basic tools 
to manage family relationships, to manage land disputes, to uh, engage in contracting, uh, to protect property, um, to, you know, to achieve security uh, so that if you decide to, you know, uh, buy a bicycle so that you can do, do deliveries throughout, you know, beyond your village, that you'll be safe in doing so. Oh, and by the way, is there any system that if you've bought that bicycle and it was a lemon, mm-hmm. you can do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's you know, wonderful sets of, of legal needs surveys that an organization I'm, I'm affiliated with in The Hague called the Hill, Hague Institute uh, for the Innovation of Law. They do legal needs surveys uh, around the globe. Um, and that's the information that comes back from those surveys. These are the, you know, these are the kinds of concerns that are preoccupying people around the world. Uh, and to the extent that what we say is those poor and developing countries have to build elaborate government-based systems uh, in order to provide people at the, the local level with you know, a secure way of ensuring that they've entered into a contract that will be enforceable or their, their property right will be protected in their market stall or um, in their home. Uh, if we require that, because we say that's what law and law is, it is the product of a stable, reliable government, then you put them into a catch-22, because those are expensive. Governments like that are expensive to run, uh, and, and law like that is expensive to produce. Uh, so what I'd love to see is the capacity for profit or nonprofit organizations to say, you know, we've now got mobile phones through a lot of, you know, say parts of Africa, uh, text-based phones, certainly not yet smartphones everywhere. Um, you know, what, why can't I develop a company that's going to provide a simple mechanism for contracting over a phone and uh, provide a simple mechanism of dispute resolution um, you know, develop a simple set of rules. Yeah, we're going to lose all the bells and whistles, but a simple basic system that works, just like that SMS phone, um, so that people can register their agreements uh, and then can have recourse to some simple mechanism. It might be technology. It might be that I actually, you know, I have a, a, an agent in, in all of these locations where people can bring and say, Here, you know, here's the photograph of what I've got, or here's, here's the goods that I received. Uh, simple dispute resolution like that. Um, I think, you know, the, the history of the development of these legal tools and mechanisms in, uh, in Europe, um, you know, through sort of the... Um, you know, the, the origins of commercial law was very much a bottom-up different group saying, here's a, here's a way we'll organize this. And I think we've actually choked that off that kind of let's solve our problem this way thinking at the ground level because we've come in and said, oh, you know, law is this thing that these governments that are recognized by the international state system do. Mm-hmm. Um and so people kind of fall down dead and say, well, I guess we've got to wait for the government to do it. And I say, well, no, let's figure out how we're going to do it at the local level. It's, um, I, think, I think there are ways to do that, and we need to really um, try to foster that kind of creativity and problem-solving. Uh, just along that line, 
one of the things that your work actually reminds me of is some of the debates uh, about metropolitan governance back in the 1960s in the U.S. So actually, at the time, many scholars believed that if you look at city governance, that cities are these kind of uniform, single administrative units, and they have to be governed from one center. Um, so in reality, of course, it turns out that cities are governed at multiple levels of governance, you know, from the federal to the state, to the city, to the district level, to the county. And and a lot of these different governments uh, oversee some of the same problems and um, coordinate some of the same solutions. Sometimes they work together, sometimes they compete with each other. Um, so... At the time, this was seen as chaotic, this kind of overlapping mess of jurisdictions and, and rules uh, for governing cities. And then Eleanor Ostrom came on the scene, and she began studying policing behavior in cities. And she found out that crime was actually reduced the most in cities where you had lots of different levels of uh, policing at different uh, parts of, of the government rather than in places where you just have one department overseeing policing for the entire city. Um, and so basically, of course, you know, Eleanor ended up being the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics for her work on mm -hmm. governing the commons. Um, but her broader contribution is very much about letting more people and organizations partake in the rulemaking um, to solve everyday coordination problems. Do you see parallels between this kind of work and what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Ostrom's work is, um, you know, groundbreaking in bringing our attention to, uh, you know, in a way, away from the theory that says, you know, we've got our economic theory that says, you know, there's, you know, free rider problems, public goods problems, you have to have, you know, well, I guess a government solution uh, to that. Um, and to, you know, focus our attention on what actually happens when people are facing these kinds of problems. Well, they, they start talking and they figure out, you know, let's try this, let's do that. Um, and that there, there can be a diversity of solutions uh, to that. Now, this is not about being anti-government. Um, there's nothing ideological that's driving, you know, um, Lynn Ostrom's yeah, uh, right. focus on this or, you know, my, you know, I talk about markets, um, but it, it really is just about that point to say problem solving happens best close to where the problem is. And this is what we've learned all the way through our corporate organizations. This is why we've moved from substantially vertically integrated massive organizations to much more networked systems that, uh, try to push problem solving closer to where the problems are. Let the specialists in that small part in the vehicle automobile figure out how to build it better mm -hmm. rather than having the, the original equipment manufacturer, the Ford or the Toyota, you know, decide top down what all the specs should be for every single part. And, and that's, that's been a significant source of the growth and innovation we've experienced over the last several decades. So I think it's a lesson we have to bring to the process of figuring out the rules and the technologies that work to help a community figure out what's the right balance in our policing approach, what's the right way to manage, um, you know, what's happening at these local levels. It's true that, um, you know, lawyers are bad for this as well in the sense that we look at that and say, oh, my gosh, it's so confusing and conflicted and let's get everybody under a single set of 
rules so we can understand it. And we say, well, that's not actually working well to produce solutions at the ground level. Mm -hmm. And um, we can't let our theory of the way government works or governance works uh, or even markets work, um, you know, blind us to the fact that, well, sometimes, you know, what you really need to do is just let things bubble around at the, the level mm -hmm. at which people are living mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and let those and then and then let the feedback come back, come up, like you say, with Ostrom's work on on policing. Oh, mm -hmm. it turns out that, you know, that that chaotic looking mess um, it produces better outcomes for people. And at the end of the day, that's all we should be worried about is what's mm -hmm. going to produce better outcomes for people. Right, absolutely. It's um, not really a, we don't really face a choice between markets and states, as she says. So essentially, um, it's, it's really more about um, solving problems and, and what kinds of institutions and, um, and governance mechanisms, both market-like and state-like, can actually help us solve those problems. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to end on a kind of broader piece of advice that you might have for students of law, politics, and economics who are graduating and entering this world of zeros and ones. You know, we're going to have to manage the world of um, uh, digitization, and we're constantly, increasingly intersecting with tech. Um, I wanted to see, you know, do you have any advice about how uh, young people uh, should be sort of helping disrupt slow-moving and opaque institutions, what can they do? So I think that our students in uh, the social sciences, um, I want to encourage them to be thinking a lot more like the students in the sciences or in the tech fields um, in the sense of, you know, an audaciousness about we don't have to do it the way it's always been done. I can come up with a better way of thinking about this. Of course, you know, we have to then go test our ideas. Not every idea is great, and some of them are pretty bad. Um, but I think uh, the, we need that kind of energy and a willingness to rethink, well, wait a second, what's our real problem here? What are we trying to accomplish? And to remove the blinders of, you know, law is produced by governments, and policy is produced in political bodies in these ways. And say, well, wait a second, what we're really trying to do is achieve greater safety uh, on the streets uh, in, in the city. So what are the other ways that we can think about doing that to um, really take on the, I think, the obligation of young people in those fields uh, to, uh, to invent the new ways to do this. We clearly are at a moment in history where we need reinvention of that. And I, you know, the, the place that will come from is, you know, young people who are thinking, okay, I want to do something more than recapitulate you know, what the great writers of the 18th and the 19th and even the 20th centuries thought about these problems. Mm -hmm. You know, what are, the, what are the new ideas? Human history of law and politics is tremendously diverse and dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, I think our ideas about it have become so powerful that we, uh, we haven't, um, we're not thinking in the kind of fresh ways that we need to 
So I would hope that this generation of students in law, politics, economics, is saying, okay, you know, what, what, what are the new ideas that we can come up with? Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jillian. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Great. Thanks, Irina. To all our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation with us today. You'll be able to find more podcasts, live talks, seminars, and blogs on the cutting-edge debates on governance directly on our website, which is csgs.kcl.ac.uk. We look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.